Hey Hi guys! Welcome back to another episode of Teach Me Out of History. My name is Laura. And my name is Jasmine. And today we will be furthering the discussion on racial injustices and races and the history of racism. But we thought we'd like to make it specifically to the history of racism in Canada. Since last week we focused on the United States and everything going on there, we really wanted to do the history of our home and demonstrate how present actually racism is in our history and how deeply embedded it is and why it's still very much present today. That's right. I think it's important just to mention that I guess Canada is not exempt from this at all because we're hearing a lot of people these days saying, oh, but we live in Canada, it's different here, or oh, well, Canada doesn't have this. Yeah, we have this like angel complex that we're better than everybody else because we're we're sweeter, we're nicer, and everything. That's else. it. It's but as it's as our if like history is just as brutal and awful. That's as it. Any other. Canada is has. We're not a peacemaking. No, at all. Uh, country, you know, and we yeah, we've done so, some bad. Oh, definitely. <laughs> and basically, that's what today we'll be demonstrating. Unfortunately, we'll be focusing on uh, like the history of racism in particular, uh, not only among the black community, which was ever present, but as well with the indigenous people. That is very much still an issue today. So we're going to give you guys a quick little timeline. Literally, we're going way, way, way back until the 1600s, the, the colonial era when the Europeans came to North America, first, first periods until modern history today. And then next week, we're going to do part two. So we we wanted to break it down into episodes just because there's so much content and we didn't want to throw it all in your faces. So... I'm going to do the historical background yeah. all in one day, like all in one episode. Yeah. And then we're going to focus on how this continuation it's, in mm-hmm. history has developed into policies and social inequality and social issues that are still going on today. Today, that's right. So part two will be really what is happening today and how it's still present. Exactly. So this all began in 1685 when um, the Code Noir came into effect in, um, in New France. So this Code Noir defines rules for slavery and restrictions for slaves. It forbade religious exercise outside of, the Ro- and outside of Roman Catholicism and it banished all Jewish people from France's colonies. So um, it was very institutional. Um, it tried to, I guess, I guess uh, institutionalize slavery and um, it governed many blacks in an often harsh manner. This was uh, put in place by King Louis XIV. Yeah. And um, on this topic, in 1689, uh, King Louis XIV officially authorized the importation of enslaved black people to New France. Yeah. Uh, why? Well, because there was a shortage of workers and servants. So basically, this was more like, I guess, to uh, an appeal to the crown. Yeah, for sure. And it was also purely for economic reasons exactly and, and that's and that's really that i think that's the most important part of this yeah. it was really economic reasons behind this it's, they wanted yeah, to make money very, and it's also important to note at this time slaves were considered as goods they were considered yes. as people necessarily no. which we all that's it so they would understand. like they yeah. would trade slaves for goods exactly and so that's basically what they were seen as. They were seen as like a form of currency. So that's it. it was purely like this this enactment of slavery in America was purely for economic reasons, per economic gain. 
you know mm-hmm. and on base and then to continue this this topic in 1709 uh, a colonial law was put in place which was called the ordinance rendered on on the subject of the negroes and the indians called panis which legalized the purchase and possession of slaves in new france so this was the first official legislation on slavery in new france um so as we were saying before this uh, slave's primary work was as a domestic which is an in-house servant most of their labor was domestic and related to the household mm-hmm. um and also it's important to know that people of all classes own slaves yeah so it wasn't usually it was the richer yeah, it but it wasn't an elitist thing but it wasn't restricted only it, exactly there were um everybody uh, no matter what class had access had access to uh, purchasing slaves mm-hmm. Um, also, a few fun facts, I guess. Uh, six out of 16 members of the first parliament of the Upper Canada Legislative Assembly owned slaves. And 14 out of the 17 members of the second parliament owned slaves. So, also, um, during this time, Canada wasn't Canada yet. So, it was Upper Canada and Lower Canada. Upper yeah. Canada usually is Ontario. And then Lower Canada is usually Quebec. Yeah. So, um just so that that's clear for everybody and then to continue on in 1734 uh, marie joseph angelique she was an enslaved woman who was charged with arson after a fire in montreal in 1734 it is alleged that she lit the town in flames in attempts to escape enslavement now there was no concrete proof she was convicted tortured and hanged despite the fact that there was no concrete evidence it was her Mm -hmm. you know and and this is really significant because the burning of montreal and the trial of marie joseph reveals a great deal about the nature of enslavement in canada so there was no direct evidence that marie joseph set the fire but she made she was basically the ideal scapegoat for the crime she was poor black enslaved and she was a foreigner Mm -hmm. so i guess that's what's most important about this about this uh, event well it also like it sets the tone for the climate and how they treated their slaves at the time as well exactly and let's just say okay let's just say she did set the fire she may have set the fire in a clear act of resistance Mm -hmm. uh white canada has enslaved her stripped her of her freedom and human rights so if she did set the fire, maybe it was because she was trying to, um, like, to, start, to start a riot, to try to flee, yeah. you know? She was trying to defend herself, but I regardless guess. Regardless whether or not, the allegations were never proven. Exactly. She was yeah. lynched and killed for absolutely no proven reason. So that just, like we said, sets very much the tone for how slaves were treated in Montreal at the time. Uh, exactly. Now, in 1793, Governor John Graves Simcoe passed the Anti-Slavery Act. He was the governor of Upper Canada at the time. And um, this Anti-Slavery Act um, basically freed enslaved people aged 25 and over and made it illegal to bring enslaved people into Upper Canada. So this contributed greatly to the decline of African enslavement in Canada and made Canada a safe haven for those seeking freedom. It was also an important base for the abolition movement. So basically, this law pledged to support anti-discriminatory laws. However, this is something that 
um, you you would learn in class. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, or if, if you search it up on Google quickly, these are the facts. Yeah, like, if you search up history of racism, this is one of the first things that pops up. Right. But what you don't learn, which is, I think, the most significant part out of all of this, is that nine members of Simcoe's Legislative Council owned slaves. Yeah. So he's putting forth this law, this anti-slavery act. However... There are people in his council who are owned like slaves. This, this was his legacy. This is what he was known for, yet it's so contradictory. Exactly. Yeah. And so th- this is why speaking about racism in Canada is so important because on the surface, we look fantastic. Yeah. But underneath it yeah, all, we, we don't look so great anymore. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, so just to continue, it, in putting forward this act, it brought about the creation of the Underground ra- uh, Railroad through which approximately 30,000 black people escaped to British North America between, the, uh, between 1800 and 1865. Um, so to explain this a little bit, the Underground Railroad was a network of activists dedicated to providing safe houses for those fleeing slavery in the United States. However, what's, again, what's never really learned is the reality and the fact that Canadian slavery was ever present and it goes back all the way to the 1600s um, and Canadian slavery lasted over 200 years in New France alone there were 4,200 slaves in this 200 uh, time uh, year time frame like time Mm -hmm. span Uh, all of them were either indigenous or black and I think that's what's really important because in Canada it wasn't only the blacks it was very much as well the indigenous people. Yeah, exactly. They were. Bo- it was both of them that were considered slaves in Ex- Canada. Exactly. And actually, the first slaves in New France were indigenous people. Yeah. And uh, then French colonists would go on to acquire black enslaved people through private sales or as gifts from allies. And, um, and on this topic, it's definitely a myth that slaves in Canada were treated better than slaves in the U.S. So it's really ironic... With this whole um, underground ra- railroad, they're fleeing, let's just say, the United States to come to Canada because maybe it's quote-unquote better, but it's it's not. So it's like they're fleeing yeah. slavery to come to slavery. It just yeah, doesn't exactly. make sense. And, like, there is also another thing to note at this time. Yes, slavery wasn't completely abolished. So, yeah, it doesn't, like, listening and actually, like, understanding all the facts, you think to yourself and you're like, but why did these slaves leave America to go mm-hmm. to go to Canada, go up, to go north, to get stuck in the exact same situation? Exactly. You know what I mean? Yes, there, it was less, a little, little, little less but tolerable, still, a little more tolerable. Yeah. But it either or, slavery was not abol- abolished in Canada exactly. at the time of the real Exactly. Movement. And still, enslaved people had no basic rights or freedoms, and... Treatment depended entirely on the slave owner in Canada. Many were still subject to cruel punishment, torture, jailing, sexual abuse, yeah. separation from their family. So it, it, it just, for me, it doesn't make sense. And finally, at this point, it wasn't abolished. But but um, on August 1st, 1834, slavery um, was finally abolished in Canada with the creation of the Slavery Abolition Act which basically uh, ended slavery throughout the British Empire, including British North America, uh, which included Canada. Mm -hmm. 
Now, understanding that the abolishment of slavery happened at this time, there's also no denying we if say for example if we'd like to compare this to the United States after the abolishment of slavery the Emancipation Act there was a long 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 period of segregation and it was also the exact same way in Canada and one form of systemic racism that a more perfect example of systemic racism does not exist is residential schools in Canada so these residential schools began in the 1880s and they were specifically for uh, indigenous children and uh, from the 1880s they only ended actually in 1996 1996 yeah guys that was 24 years ago that's not a long time ago at all so for those of you who don't know what residential schools are they're basically um, they're institutions that the catholic school originally started and then were later funded by the federal government and they long story short took children away from their families from the from the reserves from their homes and forced forced them into assimilation into european culture and by doing so they they were subjected to terrible conditions a lot of them resulted into deaths so since the 1880s until 1996 there were approximately 150,000 indigenous children that were forced to attend these schools and 6,000 students approximately were uh, actually died in these residential schools now we know the numbers that are 6,000 Unfortunately, there's a lot of undocumented cases mm-hmm. that are still out there, so these numbers can be a lot more than 6,000, and honestly, really wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me either. So, like I said, these schools were run by Catholic, by the Catholic Church, and later endorsed by the federal government, and they, it was just, it was, it was a school in which they had to live there, live away from their families, and they had to learn what European culture was like Mm -hmm. and so uh examples of how they were treated and what they needed to do is that they as soon as they left their families basically most of the time didn't really inform the families where they were taking their children really just kidnapped their children from their own families from their own homes and brought them to these schools and they shaved their heads off they gave them new names because their native names were unpronounceable to white to white people at the time and so gave them new names new identities and were severely punished for practicing any of their traditions that they were grown up with not only were they forced to abandon their culture and their beliefs but they were forced to live in terrible conditions and they were extremely malnourished and abused there were numerous numerous cases of violence sexual and physical abuse and there was absolutely no government response to this there were tons and tons of studies of professionals advising the government to do something about it throughout these years because let's be real from the 1880s to 1996 mm-hmm. is a hell of a long time and for the government to, to be doing absolutely nothing about it for that long is an abomination in my opinion so terrible living conditions extremely malnourished and because of these conditions many of them were vulnerable to diseases like tuberculosis and influenza which unfortunately was the the cause of death for many of these children uh, not only did like i said approximately six thousand students die but there were over 
And there were thousands and thousands of others that went missing as well, so we don't know whether or not they have survived. I'd like to read a quote from uh, in the experience of actually a former student at a residential school. Um, his native name is actually Oshankangwahe, uh, but he was renamed Daniel Kennedy. And so he, he, he says, and I quote, In 1886, at the age of 12 years, I was lassoed, roped, and taken into a government school at Lerbert. Six months after I enrolled, I discovered that my chardron and I had lost my name in an English name and tagged me in a new one in exchange. And he quotes, When you were brought here for purposes of enrollment, you were asked to give your name, and when you did, the principal remarked that there were no letters in the alphabet to spell this little heathen's name, and no civilized tongue could pronounce it. We are going to civilize him, so we will give him a civilized name. And that was how you acquired this brand new white man's name. End quote. In keeping with the promise to civilize this little pagan, they went to work and cut off my braids, which incidentally, according to the Asininboin traditional custom, was a token of mourning. The closer the relative, the closer the cut. After my haircut, I wondered in silence if my mother had died as they had cut my hair so close to the scalp. I looked in the mirror to see what, what I looked like. A Halloween pumpkin stared back at me, and that did. If that was civilization, I did not want any part of it. I ran away from school, but I was captured and brought back. I made two more attempts, but with no better luck. Not only is this heartfelling story just an example of the many, many, many terrible incidents that all of these children had to go through, but it also led to many years of intergenerational trauma so these students are like there's there's no doubt in my mind that these students have suffered some sort of trauma and which led to things like substance abuse anxiety and depression and these things have been intergenerational have been passed on to their children and then forth and so these intergenerational issues could only be solved in a matter of generations so Considering this only ended in 1996 and we have such deeply embedded trauma that we instilled upon these people for absolutely no reason, it's going to take a lot more than one generation to fix this issue. Next, another thing I'd like to mention, in 1944, there was also the Racial Discrimination Act that was enacted in Ontario at this time. Um, this was the first province to respond to any social change. Um, this discrimination act uh, basically prohibited public discrimination of racial, ethnic, and religious of any, of any of those forms in any public sphere. So it's interesting to see how acts like this were getting enacted across Canada, yet it was only until 1996 that one of the biggest like discrimination acts of these of these schools that were still very much present so i in my opinion i find it very very ironic not too soon after in 1946 was the viola desmond case which was a landmark which is a, a landmark in canadian history uh, so viola Des desmond is a african-american woman who lived in nova scotia and she's considered to be the rosa parks of canada so this case challenged racial discrimination in nova scotia um, and this case, this case is basically about Viola Desmond, who refused to leave um, the Roseland Theater uh, because she was in a whites-only section, which was a balcony seat and was apparently not allowed at the time. 
Viola, De Viola Desmond refused to leave her seat because she she claimed that she was allowed to, which she was at the time. There was no law prohibiting it. And that night was arrested and jailed overnight and was convicted without any legal representation. Desmond was charged for tax fraud since she paid for the wrong seat, even though it was in the exact same section, and offered to pay the difference. Um, her lawyer, unfortunately, um, brought the case to court, and when wanted, and when they wanted to face the appeal, um, failed to um, place the appeal within the ten days. And due to this technical error, the Supreme Court dismissed her case. So, after spending thirty nights in jail. Viola Desmond basically never got con never got pardoned for her crime and never got the justice that she deserved. It was only in 2010 that the official uh, the official pardon from the Canadian government was published and it was due to her sister actually advocating for her story and actually made a book about her life and about this trial. Um, and also in 2018, she became the first black woman to be on a Canadian dollar bill. So, and if you guys defined the $10 bill with her face on it, now you know her story. Furthermore, um, in 1965, there were also um, disturbing activity of the KKK in Amherstburg, Ontario. Um, so at this time, there was an incident that the KKK association actually did a cross burning at a black baptist church and not only that but they spray painted the town sign saying amherstburg name of the kkk so these actions obviously led to tension in ontario but at the end of it no arrests were made so basically these people that committed these discriminatory acts and in public sectors even though we go back and we said ontario was the first province who took that step in, 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 in placing these policies that are against racial discrimination clearly contradicts it and proves how inefficient those laws actually were at the time. And on this note of uh, like laws being inefficient, um, in 1969, um, the Sir George Williams affair took place um, in Montreal, and this was a an act or a form of resistance against um, racism and white supremacy in Montreal. So basically, the Sir George Williams affair is also known as the computer incident, and this was a response to the overt racism in North America, but more specifically um, in Montreal and in Montreal's education system. So in the, just to give a little backstory, in 1968, several black Caribbean students attending the Sir George Williams University which um, today is Concordia, but at the time, that's what it was called, uh, filed a complaint against Perry Anderson, a biology professor. He was accused of deliberately failing or consistently awarding lower grades to his black students from the Caribbean. However, the school's administration ignored these, um, these claims and denied Professor Anders Anderson of such allegations. Um, so the buildup to the actual event represents um, slavery that has been institutionalized. So what ended up happening as a, 
As a consequence to this is that students started occupying the ninth floor of the Sir George Williams campus. And um, what's important to note is that these sit-ins, they, they were sit-ins. They didn't want it to become a full-blown riot. They, yeah, were, they were peaceful at first. They were peaceful. They were there. They just wanted to make a change. Um, however, what happened was that the the Montreal police force was called in on them because I don't know I guess they were staying there for too long anyways the police force was called in and this is when things started getting nasty a fire broke loose computers were being thrown out of the the ninth floor windows papers were being thrown out of the ninth floor window and and it, it really ended in, um, in in a lot of arrests and it ended uh, very in a very nasty manner and the Caribbean students felt betrayed. Um, they felt like they had no rights and that the administration had no responsibility for it. So what ended up happening is that in the end, um, the occupation of the ninth floor ended in many arrests and lots of equipment was destroyed. Many protesters were beaten and abused by the police upon arrest. Some had to even be hospitalized. 97 people were arrested for their role in the Sir George Williams affair, and 42 of these people were black. So in the end, I guess what's really important is that in the end, this was no longer a, a about Professor Perry Anderson. Yes, what he did was racist, but it was no longer about that. It was really about the, the bigger issue of, of anti-black racism in North America. And... This occupation was an act of civil disobedience that was not planned. Um, it was a clear attempt to overcome the the psychological and material consequences of being black in a yeah. society marked by institutionalized racism. Figures just completely disregarded it. They saw the injustice and did nothing about it. Right. You know. So so. Which is, look, if you compare it to what's going on today, mm -hmm. very 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 similar. You know, like you say, right. an incident. Don't get me wrong, it was a terrible incident, say, for example, what happened to George Floyd. We, we discussed it last week. But say, for example, you take a bad incident and then you escalate it by using violence against these exactly. people that started off in a peaceful process. Exactly. Like, why was the police called in? Honestly, we will, we will never know. Yeah. How, how did the fire start? We will never know. Who, who started the fire? It's yeah. still not known. To, it's not known. Um, but all we know is that it did start, and and that's why I guess it's referred to as a riot. However, it it was it was not intended to be a riot. It was just a peaceful sit-in. People yeah, were there. Exactly. Yeah. People were there because for this one cause to help their buddies who were being discriminated against by Professor Anderson, mm -hmm. and then it it turned into something greater. Um, so as Laura mentioned, the whole the whole event about uh, George Floyd and uh, police brutality nowadays, it, it's clearly it's still happening today, and and this is what we will be discussing in next week's episode. Exactly. So like we just gave a little snippet of what's yet to come, but like right. this is the kind of stuff that we're going to talk about next week is stuff like this in the riots in montreal and so many other cases exactly guys. There, there are so many other others to talk mm -hmm. about that's why we're taking a full episode to talk about them that's because right because they really really do need to be addressed they need to be addressed because they are very important they're ever present and it it totally links back to everything that happened in the of past course. as well yeah 
So before we end today's podcast, I'd like to introduce two very good friends of mine. Um, so not only did they help me in the research for today's episode, but we're all we've all been collectively, actively uh, just getting informed and raising awareness to the issues that are going on today, not only in Black Lives Matter movement, but also with the in- social injustices that have been going on in Canada today. Uh, so I'd like to introduce my two friends, Stefania Ponzo and Simon Correa. Hi, guys. Hi. So after all of the research and everything that we've done, on a scale of 1 to 10, like how shocked were you of all the things that have been missing from our curriculum? Like per- yeah. 10 being the highest? or <laughs> Like, no, but like, w- were you guys shocked at all the information that was missing? Well, yeah, 100%. Like, that's what we were discussing throughout the entire time we were researching is a majority of the stuff that we found, we did not learn it within our classrooms. Yeah. yeah. Which is insane. And why do you guys think that? I, I think, think yeah, it, it goes, it roots back to when we talk about, you know, systemic racism and, you know, the oppression that people face. This is the system that people are referring to when they speak yeah. of systemic racism, right? The fact that, you know, someone who grew up in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, doesn't know what a residential school is, mm-hmm. that there's an issue there. That's something that, you know, Canada is based on, is founded on genocide. And that's something that a lot of people yeah. fail to acknowledge. People don't even know. And, you know, the last residential school closed in 1996. Exactly. When some people listening right now were alive during that time, mm-hmm. you know, so it's not ancient history. So, yeah, definitely. It was very shocking to see how much of it is actually missing from the curriculum that's shaping, you know, the minds of the future, basically. Yeah. And yeah. that and that's what Native Americans that we already in our history have somewhat of an understanding of how we treated them, not to the degree to how horrible it actually was, the realities yeah. of it, but even regarding black history in Canada, like so many people just think slavery was an American thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And so to find out that we had such a long history of black oppression as well, like yeah. say, for example, that we mentioned with the Viola Desmond case and so many others, like it just demonstrates how this is not only an American issue, you know? Yeah. Like um, black history is something that should be implemented throughout our curriculum in yeah. Canada. Like if you look at the QEP, the Quebec education program, um, they don't really talk about black history, which is something that is extremely shocking and sad because it is part of our history and it's something that we should learn and learning that stuff could help future students who end up being parts of society and help them, you know, be better informed and not Mm -hmm. like stuck like us at 20 something years old that we have to go searching for the information when it should have technically been yeah. taught to us in school exactly. it's not right that at our age at 23 24 years old that we have to take that step and that we're all in university we, we all three are in university right now and we're still having to take that extra step ourselves and take that initiative to learn more it's not right yeah. not only should this be implemented in our education system but it should be implemented so much earlier on you know yeah like it's crazy to me that it, it's only at my age now that i'm learning about this and not only, like, you're an education major, Seth, and I'm a history major, and we're learning about this for the first time. Yeah. It boggles my mind, you know? So yeah. it just goes to show how don't take everything at face value of what, like, say, for example, the media and what our teachers have been teaching us because it, we demonstrate in this episode how 
profoundly flawed our educational system is and how much of it is actually missing. Yeah. I think, you know, in the age of information, like where we're living now, you know, ignorance is definitely a choice. Yeah. So I yeah. think that it's important that people who are in similar situations like us go out and do that research and get informed and, you know, better themselves for themselves and you know for the greater good of society but definitely yeah, i think it starts with education and it starts with you know teaching younger kids the realities of what actually happened in yeah. canada you know canada has this very like peaceful peacekeeping type of image mm-hmm. across the world um and you know i'm sure if you ask a lot of people that they if they know that our you know the country we live in was founded on genocide that they would probably say no. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, even... Like, you know, Canada's known to be this peaceful, nice yeah, little nation, but yeah. it, it's founded on on hatred and violence and, like you said, yeah. genocide itself, you know? Yeah. And, and I think what's really important to also note is that when we say education, it's not everybody needs to get a university degree, everybody needs to be studying these things. Education could also be just talking to someone, sh- yeah. mm-hmm. sharing stories with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our friends, you know? Yeah. And talking to people that are outside of, say, for example, our ethnicities or outside of our comfort zones, like of our friends and families, reach out, talk to new people with different experiences, you know? Yeah. That's how we learn. It's not necessarily that we have to crack open books and don't don't get me wrong, it's obviously like a good option. No, but for sure. You know, like we're not telling everybody you need to get PhDs in this either. You know, it's really just in communicating and sharing each other's stories and genuinely listening to other people. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And I think there's a huge part of that that's also, um, you know, in terms of education, like if you take other countries like Germany, for example, yeah. where it's like it's illegal to deny that world war ii happened in germany you can yeah. be like you could be convicted of mm-hmm. a hate crime for doing that right yeah um there's no such thing of that in canada right okay. i'm sure there's a lot of people who don't know about the residential school system and the impact that those school systems are having on our society today yeah. you know um the impact that indigenous people are facing you know still living with today in 2020 because of these the schooling system so um i think that it's also you know it's a very deeply rooted issue and it goes it's it's yeah you know that's what people when people claim that there's you know systemic racism in canada and that that's what they're referring to they're referring to the fact that our history is being taught through the Mm -hmm. eyes of the oppressor Mm -hmm. you know exactly so it's hard to teach something that you know they're not teaching facts they're teaching their version of yeah. what mm-hmm. happened yeah it's it's exactly what we were talking about earlier on it's like this idea of victor's justice it's those who won the like it's those who won in history that are telling it right. and we don't hear the stories of say for example the native americans or from black people we're only now hearing it we're, we're only now hearing their sides of the story but we should have heard this a long time yeah. ago you know and also like going off of that like like what Simon was saying also, ignorance is a choice. Yeah. So some mm-hmm. people, even though they're hearing it, they still choose to, you know, think, oh, you know, that, that was in the past. That's not happening now. Or that's just right. like one story. But in reality, if you do the research and you look through the stuff, you could see tons of stories on top of yeah. the other. Like how many times has the same thing occurred over time like over history like i can't breathe yeah it said with eric gardner and it happened again with george floyd just a couple years later mm-hmm. so 
and uh, based off the education that you were talking about, I think it's also important to be like reading books. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. There's a lot of information out there and if you don't go looking for it, you're not going to find it. Yeah. But there are things put in place for you to find books. Also for children, to read to young children, there's books that you could read about racism. Um, you're never too young to teach your child yeah. not to be racist. Exactly. Like, yeah. just put that out there, please. <laughs> but there's, like, great resources. Like, Scholastics, yeah. they have mm-hmm. books that you could te- to read to young kids. Well, even, Steph, you have a book that you showed me. And oh, it, yeah. honestly, it, 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 it's, it's a perfect example. Uh, what's it called? It's called... Big Dreamers, the Canadian Black History Activity Book for Kids. Yeah, it's the, it's the simplest, easiest way to explain, like, black history to your children. Yeah. And that's one of the many, many, many resources out there. You know, like, I work at a daycare, so does Steph. And, like, even at that age, like, I, I remember speaking to, like, fellow educators of mine. And she was telling me, she's like, I, I did a black history month with my kids. And she's like, they're three years old. And I remember, like one of the kids he was saying he goes oh you're not pretty because you're black and this is three years old and after she basically like kind of educated him and said well look like do you like rihanna do you like other singers and he goes yeah and he goes well they're black and they're beautiful and it's just in that little change of perspective that this three-year-old at the end of that year ended up loving this educator and she told me he's like he ended up going back from vacation and he goes and like he told her, he goes, I, I tried getting like beautiful like you, like dark skin like you in the sun. But he's like, I wasn't able to. And it was just the cutest little story, you know. So it's like at such a young age, you're able to change their minds and make that impact. So it's never too young. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it has to be taught at a young age. Yeah. Because if it's never too early, it's never too late. Just do it whenever you can like some parents might shy away from the topics or like try and ignore it and pretend it's not serious or important to talk about but like these kids are very easily influenced so by talking to them from a young age even like the child was in uh was three years old yeah so even in daycare like even having toys um like different babies in the class like black babies white babies Mm -hmm. you know like just having them experience that is also very important Mm -hmm. of course because i've been in daycare classrooms where all they have is just like white babies yeah and like other students don't feel comfortable in that class because the stuff that is found in the class like the toys or pictures or even post um, like dolls that are just white dolls and Mm -hmm. they don't feel comfortable because they don't feel represented in the classroom so if the parents aren't taking that initiative myself personally as a teacher i plan on taking that initiative in my classroom because i don't want to reproduce future students who end up entering society and being extremely rude to Mm -hmm. other people based Mm -hmm. on the color of their skin so i feel like it's very important from a young age to instill that into Mm -hmm. their brains that everyone is equal everyone should be treated properly and and you know what? It could even be not even like just educating children. Yes, it's very important. But even it can be just as simple as like, say, for example, you're at a family event or an aunt and an uncle makes a comment and you yeah. stop for them sure, and you yeah. say, look, that's not OK. And you explain why that's not OK. And, you know, whether or not they absorb that information is up to them. But you did your part. You yeah. know what I mean? It's in pe- it's in people not tolerating this prejudice and this this racism that we still have going on today this is how you stop it it's in little actions like this that people like they might have this understanding of like oh it's been going on for such a long time it's not just going to end overnight yeah it's not going to end overnight but we need to put the effort into it 
in in being hopeless and having that mentality nothing's ever going to change exactly you know yeah for sure like one of my good friends just became a mom recently and like one of her rules when starting to you know get books and toys for her daughter was that she didn't want them to be you know exclusively white people yeah. you know like so every book that you know her daughter is reading has you know people of color black people indigenous people and any person of color in it. and i think that you know yeah. it's it's at a very young age to start instilling these ideas mm-hmm. into into kids and it's important to foster you know inclusive environments and you know acknowledge that there are people who don't look like you there are people who are different and yeah. you know this is why and like teach them you know from the time that they could even understand what a color is right yeah so exactly and you know what this is not only with black people in general like especially in canada going back to our history it's also with indigenous people like yes the movement right now it's with the black lives matter movement but we also have to understand our canadian history is deeply deeply rooted in indigenous oppression yeah i think that you know even more than that it's like any type of you know, everything needs to be inter- intersectional, yeah. right? So it's like, you can't go out and say that black lives matter if you don't believe that, like, black queer lives matter yeah. and black disabled lives matter. Exactly. And, or know, even, like, Asian lives or for sure. any other and ethnicity. You can't just say, you can't just be pro, like, black lives matter and then, like, like you have to have this prejudice against any other minority either, right. you know what I mean? So this is why, like, I'm sure people must be questioning. They're like, well, why are, like, people talking about Native American issues and, like, mm-hmm. like our Canadian history with, like, Indigenous people when this is a Black Lives Matter movement? It's because it's more than just Black Lives Matter. This is all, like, it's not, look, we understand all lives matter. And, yes, it's specifically Black Lives Matter. But in Canada, we also need to acknowledge our faults in history and our repetitions in history and the mistakes that are still being brought today in our society and our policies, not only in black culture, but in indigenous as well, you know? So on that note, I'd like to thank you both very, very much for helping me out. And I had a blast. Anytime. (laughs) Yeah, we will definitely be doing this soon. Yeah, and I think that, you know, the type of conversations that we're, the type of conversations that we're having now are something that don't really have an end, right? They're they're ongoing conversations. It's important to, you know, like we mentioned before, ignorance is a choice in this time. So it's important to keep on educating yourself and those around you. And um, yeah, so it's, it's a conversation that doesn't end right now. Exactly. Anyways, thank you very much. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye.